0: Thanks for listening to the City Collective Podcast. We hope that this message from Pastor Jason Charles and the City Collective team challenges and inspires you. Enjoy. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way that persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, good morning, City Collective Church. My name is Pastor Ian Graham. I'm the pastor of Ecclesia Church out in Princeton, New Jersey, and it's uh, great to be with you from the other side of the continent. You know, honestly, I've never been to Canada but I've thoroughly enjoyed every Canadian I've ever met. So even if every Canadian is not singularly awesome, I'm sure you know some people that aren't as great. You guys have done a great job at determining who gets to leave the country and come to America because every Canadian I've ever met has been incredible. So, so honored to be with you this morning and so honored to teach to you from this text, this text of the Sermon on the Mount, which theologians and and followers of Jesus throughout the history of the church have determined is Jesus' most all-encompassing, influential teaching. And so, such an honor to be with you this morning and and such a joy to open this text together. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. If you're honest with yourself, in, in the depths of your heart, who doesn't get to go to heaven? Asked another way, who again? Not not okay. Not what you know is the right answer, the Sunday school answer. Everybody can receive God's grace, but just the way that you feel viscerally in your own estimation, who is too far gone to receive God's love? And his incredible brothers, Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky, puts this kind of thought in an impassioned speech from the skeptic in the book, a man known as Ivan. And Ivan describes his refusal to believe in the grace of Jesus precisely because it promises that in the end, even the worst of sinners can receive the grace of God and enter the kingdom of heaven and be given by, forgiven by those whom they've done wrong. Ivan describes one particularly awful scene where a nobleman sicks his dogs on a young peasant child simply because the child had caused the injury to the nobleman's favorite hound. Ivan says simply, If the salvation of the world requires the suffering of one small child, then I simply refuse my entrance. I return my ticket. Thank you, but no thanks. And this to me... For all the questions of, of science uh, that, that have been posed to Christianity, how could Jesus be resurrected? I think there's so much with quantum physics now that we're learning that just makes uh, the, the idea of God as creator, as God as, as transcendent, even more plausible. But for all these really good questions, my struggles typically don't come from that particular sphere of the world. No, this, this question that Ivan poses... This philosophical question about the grace of Jesus is is the most confounding that I have come across. And I think it introduces the question that we are faced with today, that Jesus will address as he begins his Sermon on the Mount. And really the question that he is, is kind of dancing around is, for whom is it possible to be blessed by God? Who can be blessed by God and who cannot? This is what Jesus begins to address in Matthew chapter 5. And we'll land in Matthew chapter 5 today, but first I want to look at Matthew chapter 4. Because just before Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus in Matthew 4 has been ministering to the people, announcing the presence of the the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 4 verse 24 it says, so he's Fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured each one of them. And what we have in these chapters, Matthew four, and then Matthew five through seven, which contain the Sermon on the Mount, what we have in these chapters is a sort of mini Exodus. Now, if you'll recall, the Exodus is the story of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He released them from their captivity in order to establish them as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as he says in Exodus 19, verse 6. Here, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been releasing through healing, through casting out demons... Those who are enduring great suffering, physical pain, oppression from evil forces, Jesus has been liberating them from their bondage. And in the book of Exodus, following the liberation from Egypt, God then, after he has done this incredible work of liberation, as as he's made a way through the sea, as he's crushed Pharaoh's army, after that moment, God then appears to them on a mountain, to teach them what it means to be a part of the people of God. He gives them, in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. And as we arrive in Matthew chapter 5, the text begins, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, sound familiar? And after he sat down, his disciples came to them. All the markers here are trying to get us to pay attention. There is a new exodus beginning in this Jesus of Nazareth. Just as God liberated in the past, he is doing a new work in the present, a fuller work of liberation. The kingdom of heaven is near, as Jesus would come proclaiming. And his words are the gifts of grace that will form us as a people, that will form us fully in the vision of exodus, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And yet this time, As opposed to the scene in Exodus chapter 20, this time God's countenance is not hidden by the torrent, the shroud of thunderclouds and smoke and lightning, but God is fully revealed in the face of this brown-skinned man, this Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth. And the text says in Matthew chapter 5, Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now for some of you listening to me this morning, you grew up in church, you've heard this a million times, and it's so easy for us to fall victim to an over-familiarity with this text. So just what exactly is Jesus talking about, and how do we begin to recover the radical character of what Jesus is saying here? Well, I want to first scan through some common misconceptions when it comes to making sense of this text. Because when Jesus teaches that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the record would have stopped. People would have turned their head like, who's blessed? Are you sure? And the first mistake that we often make in reading this text is we try to spiritualize away the meaning of spiritual blessings. After all, Matthew does say, The poor in spirit, perhaps he's not talking about actual poverty here. But in Luke's gospel, in a parallel teaching called the Sermon on the Plain, in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus simply leaves off the in spirit. And he says, with no qualifiers, blessed are the poor, period. So the question that we have as we're left with this tension, is Jesus talking about a physical poverty or a spiritual poverty? Well, the answer, as it is so often when it comes to the beauty of Jesus, who can hold so many things in tension, who invites us into mystery, the answer to the question whether it's spiritual or physical poverty is both. Now, this leads us to our next misconception as we try to apprehend this text Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 11, will pronounce blessing on the poor in spirit, on those who mourn, he'll pronounce blessing on the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, the reviled. And for some of us, we are achievers. We see a vision or a goal that we want to attain, and then we design the list of habits that will help us to achieve it. But we read these blessings of Jesus, these beatitudes, as they're commonly called, completely backward. If we look at these as some sort of uh, kingdom checklist, as attributes of something to be attained, I mean, how exactly does someone will their way to being pure in heart? Are we to seek out poverty, persecution, and people saying all kinds of bad things about us? Is that what it means to walk in the way of Jesus? Or is there something else, something much more profound and something much more infused with grace going on here? Glenn Stassen in his incredible book, Living the Sermon on the Mount, says of Jesus' words here, the Sermon on the Mount is not first of all about what we should do. It is first of all about what God is already doing. It is about God's presence. The breakthrough of God's kingdom in Jesus, it is about God's grace, God's loving deliverance from various kinds of bondage in vicious cycles that we get stuck in, and deliverance into community with God and others. The blessings pronounced in the Beatitudes are just that. They are blessings of grace, unmerited favor Proclaimed upon those who in Jesus' day were decidedly not blessed. They are not about our checking the right boxes of performance or achieving certain levels of piety or poverty or spiritual discipline. They are completely centered around the person and the presence of Jesus. The point that Matthew is making is Jesus, where Jesus is, the rule and reign of God, which proclaims good news to the poor, liberation for the captives, healing for the brokenhearted, and sight for the blind, is present and moving. And where the rule of reign is of Jesus are present, the last are first. The poor are honored and blessed. So what exactly does Jesus mean here by poverty of spirit? those who are oppressed and hard-pressed for their daily bread. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not being vague or esoteric. He is saying that there is actual blessing at the intersection where our physical longing for daily bread and our spiritual longing for the grace of God meet. To paraphrase Frederick Buechner, we find blessing at the intersection where God's great gladness and our great hunger meet. We don't achieve poverty of spirit. We receive it just as we receive the rule and the reign of King Jesus. Our prayer is not, Lord, make me poor in spirit so that you may bless me. Our prayer, as Jesus will later teach the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, is your kingdom come, your will be done. And we pray all of this to our loving Father whose fundamental posture towards us is blessing To become more poor in spirit is to cultivate a life with Jesus that receives grace, that receives forgiveness, and that receives his heart for the poor in our world, that extends our faith in trusting him with our resources, with our futures, and refuses, as we'll later see in the Sermon on the Mount, to adopt a posture of judgment and condemnation towards others. Jesus then goes on, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now for many of us, we know that we don't need to go out looking for mourning. As, as, as vague as it may seem to be poor in spirit, to mourn is very real to us. The grief and the sadness of this world find us all. And perfe- perhaps for you this morning, you are mourning circumstances in your own personal life. Dreams that have, this pandemic has deferred or ended altogether, the loss of a relationship, uh, the loss of a job, or even worse, a loved one. Here in the United States, it seems as if for the first time, we are learning to collectively grieve and mourn the status of racial relations in our country. I'm not well versed in the history of race relations in Canada, but I assume you all are experiencing this moment in some similar ways to what we are experiencing here in the States. And Jesus offers this simple unvarnished truth, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Clarence Jordan says a mourner is not necessarily one who weeps. He is one who expresses a deep concern. If the one about whom he is concerned dies, he might express his grief by crying. He might also do it by praying or in some other ways. Tears aren't essential to mourning, but deep concern is. You see, Jordan was not just a theorist. He was a New Testament scholar and a farmer who, in response to the Jim Crow South, the racism that was present in Georgia in the early 20th century, started a farm called Koinonia, where black and white lived and worked together, farming the land, sharing resources, and ultimately sharing life. Their fellowship, which that's what koinonia means in Greek, their fellowship, their life together was a sign to the wider world that there is a better way than racism, that the gospel of Jesus liberates us to live differently. This is where we find the blessedness of Jesus. This is where we find the blessedness of Jesus in the mourning of the world. Responses like Clarence Jordan and, and the people that were living with him, the Koinonia farm. Not only does the reign of King Jesus cause us to mourn for our own sin or the sins of our world. You see, Clarence Jordan could have just seen the racism that he was presented with every day. And, and could have just said, wow, how awful that is. But this is the incredible thing about the gospel of Jesus because of our mourning, because we are moved to concern, because we are moved uh, to be deeply and passionately uh, caring about these issues, because of the blessing of Jesus in that morning, our mourning doesn't only keep us in sadness or in despair, our mourning moves us to action. Action that is not overcome by the darkness of the world, but action that that drives out all fear with perfect love. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, because like Jesus on the cross, His great sorrow, His great suffering, His great concern, what what John 3.16 calls His love for the world, is exactly what overcomes evil and sin and death. In Victor Hugo's Les Mis, Jean Valjean is a criminal who has served for years for a crime of stealing bread to feed his hungry sister. And upon finally being released after years of hard labor, he's given a document that he must present as he tries to find a town to live in and tries to find employment. And these papers are like a scarlet letter forever identifying him as a felon. And he finds that though he is no longer in physical chains, he's still in bondage. Unable to live with any measure of freedom. Destitute and hopeless, he finds himself with no lodging and nothing to eat. And what's more, if he's sleeping on the streets, he could be arrested for vagrancy and returned right back to the prisons. With no other options, he knocks on the door of the local Catholic priest, a man named Bishop Bienvenu. And the bishop, confronted with this man at his door, welcomes him in, as he would welcome Jesus himself. He doesn't even ask him his name, for he says, when I saw you, I knew your name. Your name was my brother. And he sits Jean Valjean down to a fine meal of meat and wine. He gives him a comfortable bed for the night. But Jean Valjean has seen his life in the world. This Brief reprieve, though it's like staying at a five star hotel, will end and he'll be cast out into the darkness again. It's only a distraction from what awaits him the horrors of homelessness and shame, and God forbid, even the prison uh, walls again. And so Jean Valjean schemes to take matters into his own hands. He steals some of the priceless silver from the house of the bishop and escapes in the middle of the night. Jean Valjean, even in the midst of the incredible kindness of the bishop, is utterly and completely poor in spirit. And the next day, Jean Valjean, as he is fleeing the scene, is apprehended by the police. They drag him back to the bishop's house, lay the silver out on the table, and look at the bishop. And when the policeman asks the bishop about Jean Valjean's possession of the silver, the bishop simply replies, My dear friend, You forgot to take the candlesticks that I gave you also." When the policeman had departed, Jean Valjean is simply staring at the bishop in awe and amazement and terror. He can't believe that he's been shown this incredible grace, and the bishop turns to Jean Valjean and says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy back from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Jean Valjean is an example of what it means to be poor in spirit, and yet he finds himself blessed. Jean Valjean was mourning the state of his destitute life, the years of vitality that are lost, the horrors that await him, and yet he finds himself blessed. And even though he had betrayed the kindness of the bishop, he finds that blessing meets him, that blessing greets him at the door, and that blessing sets him free and liberates him to live into a new future. Who can be blessed? Where are the lines and the boundary markers of grace drawn? You see, grace is always a scandal. It is always a surprise. Who is blessed in the kingdom of Jesus? The answer is... Those who seem exactly like the least likely candidates for blessing. When you think about your own life, does the voice in your head and in your heart tell you that you are not worthy of God's love? Jesus says, blessed are you. Does your past seem like it has robbed you of a future? Jesus says, blessed are you. Do do your present circumstances tell you that all hope is lost? Jesus says, blessed are you. Jesus on the cross demonstrates God's blessing by becoming, as Paul says, a curse for us. His life is poured out for us because Jesus' fundamental posture towards the world is blessing upon blessing. And City Collective, I urge you, receive this blessing today. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and if you feel the weight of that poverty in your own life, whether it be physical or spiritual, God's blessing, His grace, His presence is for you. He is drawing near to you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Friends, if there are tears in your eyes this morning, if you are in despair and don't see a future ahead, Would you see that Jesus is drawing near, that as Revelation 21 says, he himself will wipe every tear away from our eye. Blessed are you when you feel the weight of being poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you mourn. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the scandal of grace. Would you see that Jesus is drawing near to you this morning? Grace and peace to you, friends. Thanks for listening to the City Collective podcast. We hope you enjoyed that message. Please subscribe to stay up to date with every weekly message. For more information on City Collective, please visit www.citycollective.com. Or if you're in the greater Vancouver area, come visit us for Sunday. You can find more about our church and how you can get involved with what God is doing in the Lower Mainland. Have a great day.